right now inside AppMagic, we're building the next tool, the next big thing that's going to help us not just evaluate game ideas from the marketing perspective, but also from game mechanics, game aesthetics. So understanding what is fun, how it is decomposed and how it can be used. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy, how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Mobile Growth and Pancakes. I'm your host, Jonathan Fishman. I'm VP Marketing at uh, Mavens, who is owned by uh, Zynga uh, as of uh, two, three months ago, which is exciting. Um, and I'm really happy to have here with me Stan Minasov, the VP product of App Magic. Hey, Stan, what's up? Hey, hey, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, could you tell us a bit about App Magic and, and your own path and uh, how long you've been with the company? Sure, sure. So, um, as you've mentioned, uh, my name is Stan. I'm VP of product at App Magic. It's an analytical tool for analyzing mobile markets and gaining actionable insights. So we've a versatile tool with lots of instruments inside, but basically there are two reasons to use us. First, uh, understanding what type of game or what type of app to develop. So evaluating game ideas, app ideas, and understanding what to do next. And second reason is understanding, all right, so I've got a already successful app or a game, but what should I do next? How to build it long-term? What strategy should I use? How to analyze the markets? So these are the cases when we are the best one on the market to use. Uh, as for my journey, I've been working in IT industry for the last 10 years, I suppose. Um, before that, I was actually a teacher, a mathematical teacher. I've, I've even worked in, at school for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, good old days. Uh, but then I've moved to the IT as a product manager at first. And worked for a couple of years in a gaming company called Pixonic as a community producer. And you everything about the communities, how to build them, how to hear the feedback from your players. And actually, it helps a lot because now I know the both sides. So I know how to use the analytics, the data-driven approach, how to use the statistics with your cold mind. But at the same time, I know when I have to hear the feedback from the players or from the users because it's really important to balance these two. Uh, then I've worked for, for a couple of years in different startups and companies of different size, health and fitness, gaming once again, sometimes lifestyle, and finally ended up at AppMagic. So I've been working here for, I'd say, half a year now, though the product itself is more than five years live. And I really love it because um, it's the best blend of being creative for finding new tools to analyze the market, for finding possibilities to help companies out there. But at the same time, you have to work with statistics and data really precise, I'd say even with a scientific approach. So you have to check your hypothesis. You have to be humble. You have to be as objective as you can, because there are some situations when you've got, for example, a great insight, or you think about it as a great insight, and you think, all right, so that's the thing I want to work with, and I just need data uh, that will resonate with it. And then you end up digging for the data that will help you, not the data that will bring you the 
realistic version of events, but rather that will help your own insight, which isn't the scientific way. It isn't the way it should be. Yeah, nice. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, first of all, your journey is fascinating. Uh, this, uh, the, the time we live in is kind of crazy that you can be a math teacher and a mathematician and then move to gaming and mobile. It's, uh, it's really amazing. And I think what you touched on is a, is a fascinating combination of, because um, it is true. And we, uh, in our uh, journey as a store maven, we did a lot of things to add um, or at least approach the creative problem on the app store and on the marketing uh, mobile games and apps um, through science and, and through the, 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 I mean, the scientific approach um, is not, well, I would say it's really tough to get creative people to adopt it and, and not do everything that you said. For example, when we um, we had a product for A-B testing uh, apps or product pages, which is used mm -hmm. by uh, UA folks and USA people, ASO people, sorry. Um, so when when we did that, it's, it's you know, the, the challenges of getting an A-B test right are huge. And usually the reason that it fails is because the person that is running it is looking for a certain result. And then the, the test is just, uh, it's plagued by, by a lot of different problems and they just do it and, and run it until they see the result that they want or stop it. It's just like, it becomes a tool for verifying some idea that you have that you want to verify uh, and folks just disregard the math, the science behind it. So uh, I love it that this is your, your, um, your journey. Um, so let's talk today. We, today we want to talk a bit about how to evaluate uh, mobile game ideas, new mobile game ideas. Um, I can say that it's one of the toughest problems that game companies have today to find uh, game ideas that are both fun. They have a core fun mechanic and are fun to play. That goes without saying, but it's still very hard to do. Uh, it's a creative problem and a game design problem. Uh, but even if you do find a game that is really fun, I mean, it works, it's, it's a fun game. Uh, there is a second uh, side to that problem, which is making sure that the game has a big enough audience um, that is willing to engage with this game and, and that you can reach that audience and scale the game. Uh, that means that, that the game uh, is able to become profitable and the user acquisition economics, uh, meaning the cost per install that, that you need to uh, pay in order to get a new install for the game, uh, is lower than the lifetime value of that user. And that's a problem that a lot of games, uh, even if they're fun, they, they fail at solving that problem. And then uh, the game just can't scale and whatever studio worked on that game uh, ditches it and starts from scratch. Given that that process takes uh, years, uh, usually depending on the type of the game, I'm not talking about hyper-casual games, but more um, casual, mid-core or even hardcore games, it's... Uh, it's a very costly problem to solve. So I would love to get your thoughts about um, how do you view this process of how to evaluate new game ideas and how um, a more scientific approach can be used in order to do so. Sure, sure. It's absolutely true. It is a tough problem. And there are two approaches, as you've just mentioned. Uh, the one is marketing approach. So you want to know what's going on. You want to check your competitors and we will discuss it like right now. Another one is approach from the game design perspective when you want just to build a fun game. And actually right now inside App Magic, we're building like the next tool, the next big thing. 
that's going to help us not just evaluate game ideas from the marketing perspective, but also from game mechanics, game aesthetics. So understanding what is fun, how it is decomposed, and how it can be used. It is just still work in progress, but we know that this is a big part of the process and we've never tackled it before. So it was important for us to go out there and try to find ways for helping people as well. But returning to the marketing side, uh, it's really important to understand what are the numbers behind our choices, because just roughly 10,000 games, new titles, new games appear monthly on the stores, and they will be ranked at least once during their lifetime. So at least once they will be featured and they will be seen by their target audience. Two thirds were well-built, well-produced and well-developed. So they were like a dedicated team of experts who wanted to make a great game. They really believed in it. Yet only 3% gain more than $100,000 over a lifetime. Only 3%. The numbers are just crazy and very crucial, I'd say. So you really have to know what you are doing. It's basically like a winner-takes-all market. I mean, those that succeed are very few. Usually they're owned. I mean, that's actually, I'm not sure that I, I agree with the, with the argument that it's only huge game companies that are able to win the market. Every now and then you see like um, a new and emerging studio that, that has a success. Um, but anyway, it's a very tiny percentage of game publishers and games in general that uh, that make, I would say, if, if you even change that threshold and you ask which games are making more than $10 million a year, you get very few. True, true. And it's a very rare situation when you've got um, some kind of a survivorship bias, when there is a company that made it to the top and they still don't know what was the main reason. So they, they were just like making an interesting game. They didn't invest in marketing and suddenly they're up there. It still it still happens for the consoles and PCs. So they can be indie games. For example, take Dwarf Fortress. The guys were developing it for 20 years. They've made a very loyal core audience. Now they've uh, they put it just on Steam with new graphics and boom. As far as I remember, during six days, they got like, 300,000 downloads, 300,000 purchases, a big success. But they had a very big way up to the success, whole 20 years of developing a game. And there is not much games out there, especially in mobile world. Even if we, if we don't talk about hyper casual that are like Calibris or Butterfly, they like leave for a month and then they die. Still, you don't have so much time. So you need to balance your resources. You need to know what is going on. You need to know how to balance the user acquisition and the earnings and the LTVs from each one of the user. So I'd say when we are thinking about evaluating game ideas from the marketing perspective, the first step that you should do is identification, understanding what type of game do you want to build. And usually there are two ways. So either we're inspired by already existing game, we downloaded, we played it, and we really, really loved it. We want to make something of our own. Or maybe we can be inspired by a genre. Or for some reason, we have an expertise in this genre and we want to dig deeper. Either way, it's really important to check if anyone else has come up with the same idea before. So for that, what can be really useful is a good categorization system. And I'm not talking about categorization system in App Store or Google Play, that they, they can be useful. But the problem there is that um, 
sometimes it's too high level. It's too abstract. You can't go deep enough in order to analyze the market. And secondly, the marketing is the king right now in the world of mobile gaming. And so some of the games out there, they try to pretend being another niche or another genre. So in the core gameplay, they can be one title, but on the outside, on the screenshots, in the ads, even in the categorization itself, they tend to be another game in order to gain more users at a lower price. Yeah, let, let me, I mean, that that's a really interesting point and it really, I really connected to it because um, we, we, we tackled that problem in the past of actually creating a good game taxonomy. And I think most of the industry, I mean, um, App Annie is trying to do a uh, data AI. Sorry, I get can I can't get used to their new name. Uh, they have the same yeah, thing. Yeah. I think it's called Game AQ. Um, game Refinery, uh, yeah, Game Refinery has the same thing. Sensor Tower has something because everybody understands that the categories in the App Store aren't that useful for um, for these purposes. I mean, to think about marketing assets or to uh, understand who's your true competitors. And the reason, and there's two reasons of why uh, folks, as you said, they like pretend to be in a, in a different category. One of them is because that category is easier to rank in. So the ranking in the App Store mm-hmm. is mostly based on um, a new that da- new install velocity or new download velocity. Um, and some categor- categories are less popular. Like if uh, the games above you in the chart are, hi- are I don't know, hyper-casual games that are based on acquiring millions of users for a very low CPI, uh, it's going to be very hard to get more installs in them. So your ability to rank high is, is lower. I mean, it's it's not uh, as easy, uh, but you can choose to be in a different category where you know the number of downloads is is less. So uh, I don't know. Imagine like really hardcore uh, games, um, RPG games, stuff like that, and uh, and then it's easier to rank. I mean, your user acquisition budgets would actually create more organic exposures by ranking you higher in the App Store. So that's one. And the second reason that is. I think is also very fascinating is folks that use their marketing assets to basically reach a new audience. Uh, I think one of the uh, most um, creative but controversial examples of that was, um, I think it was started by Playrix, but I'm not sure, a few years ago uh, with uh, fake ads. So folks just showed on their UA ads and on the uh, marketing assets on the App Store a different type of games. Usually it was like a mini game that didn't even exist within the the game that you downloaded. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you got that ad uh, and and sent it to different ad networks, their algorithms were trained to find users that like that type of game. So they served it to that audience and you were able to target that audience with those fake creatives. Um, But it was very controversial because you actually, it's like false advertisement and there's there's a ton of other problems that creates. But... um, Really interesting point. All right, so so back to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing to add here, actually, uh, that is one of the trends that are going right now in the industry, fake ads and fake gameplay. And I was really stunned and shocked, to say at least, because I was sure this trend will be there like maybe for, for half a year, maybe a year max. But right now, there are a lot of fake ads in different genres, in different gameplays. So you can have a game and then 10 other games that are shown in the ads. But it it evolutionized, it developed. So then we we've seen fake screenshots. So you've got the page of your app, and there are uh, like screenshot of the real gameplay, screenshot from the fake ad, screenshot of real gameplay, and so on and so on. But going one step further, 
that there are onboardings that include uh, gameplay from the fake ads and fake screenshots. So it's absolutely craziness. You download a game, you begin playing it, and then you've got like two different games inside it in your onboarding. And then suddenly, like from, I don't know, from level 10, part of it just drops. I mean, the fake ads. And then there is the real game. And it's absolute craziness. I don't really know why it works, but it it does, apparently. It works because because of the ad networks. I mean, there's a lot of ad networks. Um, first of all, when it it started, it was uh, mostly used on, on self-attributing networks, such as Facebook. And their algorithms are really, really good and efficient in finding an audience that responds positively to an, an ad creative. So let's say if you have a um, match three game, I don't know. Um, I, I won't use any names. But uh, a match three game with a certain theme, uh, but using your ad creatives, um, I'm trying to just to find a, an example that doesn't exist because I don't want to name anyone. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's say you have a match three game with, wow, well, it's really hard, with a character of um, a queen. <laughs> a queen, yeah. That, that's what I thought. A good example, yeah. You have a character of a queen, and it's not that prominent in the game. Like The game is a pretty classic match three game, uh, really fun to play. Uh, but in the ad creatives, uh, what they use is like different mini games featuring that queen. And it almost doesn't exist in, in the game. But um, that really helps them find folks that are attracted to more casual uh, or even hyper-casual games of uh, or different puzzle games, like it's solving different challenges. There's the, all those ads with, um, you know, you need to pull that pin and save that queen and, and all of those things. Uh, so the ad network serves that ad to uh, a different audience uh, than what it would if you would just upload uh, an ad creative of a classic match three gameplay. Uh, so that's why it really works. And then it reduces the, the CPI because it attracts a more casual or even a hyper casual audience. Um, but then, as you said, like eventually the game uh, caught up. Like they added because it was so uh, popular, they added th those mini games, and and um, and some games actually made it part of their core mechanics. So um, that's uh, that's why it works. Thank you, thank you for the technical aspects. Uh, it's really true. Uh, I'm still wondering why it works, like from the user's perspective because just to think about it you come to the market and there is this guy saying hey everybody fresh fish fresh fish here and you come to him and he's saying hey friend do you want some apples and you're like what i, I came here for the fresh fish but it apparently works because for some of the folk there they want both the apples and the fish and if they come to him they say yeah all right maybe i should look for for the apple as well it, it will work so yeah but when you think about it especially on a grander scale and we are talking about like millions and millions billions of users even it's funny to see these trends in such a big picture yeah right. Let, let's get back to the taxonomy like the the categorization yeah. How, yeah. how would you approach uh that that problem, or how do you approach it differently than than other folks in the industry? Actually, we do approach it, and uh, our decision is that we we understood that in order to create a real precise taxonomy, in order to be on the one hand deep enough with all the subgenres and sub niches, but at the same time, uh, in order to be accurate, you need a dedicated team of experts. You you should do it manually. Some things can be automized, but if you try to uh, automate it like at whole, then you will fail, or at least your precision won't be enough. So that's one of the reasons 
why for the last five years, we had a dedicated team of experts who daily were looking for the game. So we've got thresholds. Of course, we don't work with games and apps that are like trash apps out there. There are lots of them, of course. But for every game released that is just uh, worth of an attention, we categorize it. We, of course, we look at it. We sometimes download it. We check the screenshots we played and we categorize it. Thanks to this approach, we've got like the biggest uh, base right now out on the market and the the deepest. For example, our partners from the Google, they've mentioned that even compared to them, our categorization system is deeper and better, especially when you want to analyze the market. And that's one of the crucial steps when you want to evaluate game ideas. Say uh, we've got, I don't know, uh, we want to create a game and we're inspired by an already existing one. And there is, I don't know, for, for example, say there is a mobile title based on a very um, famous IP a collectible card game that suddenly blew up the market. I, I, I'm not really sure whether we can name the, the games or not. Okay, try not to. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Then we've got some kind of a very famous IP with superheroes, for example. And then there is a collectible card game that performs really well. And we are saying, all right, this is a good example. We really love the gameplay, the mechanics, the aesthetics. We want to build one of our own. So the first thing, you should try to do is understand what type of niche this game takes. For example, when you go to the app magic, you will see that it's probably will be a card game, but going deeper, it is a collectible card game, which is different from other types of card games. You also can check the setting and the art style, and it can be especially important when we are talking about developing a variation on an already existing successful game with a successful core gameplay. But it doesn't work always. You have to be careful about it. And I will give some tips and tricks in order how to be careful about it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a rational step afterwards, so you now know the category, you know the genre, is checking what is going on there. So who are the main competitors? What is the revenue distribution? What is the average profitability? Just in order to understand, okay, is it the market I want to try to go in? Do you have enough resources? Do I have enough expertise there? On a high level, but still it will give you some information, especially when you're choosing between different market segments. Though there is an important advice uh, I, I want to give, uh, do not try to fight with the giants unless you're a giant yourself. So usually when people are trying to explore different genres and look at the top performing games, they're thinking, all right, so I should know the best practices, and then I will be good. But that's not true. First of all, as I've already mentioned, there is survivorship bias. So there are some games and some publishers out there that are not really sure what were the key reasons for their success. They they might know, for example, we've got a dedicated, a great marketing team, and they doing really well. But we don't really understand what is the core reason for the success of our gameplay. And it isn't the best idea to follow someone who doesn't know the reasons of their success. The second problem is unequal conditions. So usually guys at the top, they've got bigger marketing budgets, they've got bigger teams, they've got bigger expertise. So there is no way you can compete with them. And it's a better idea to see what is going on with your peers with the tail of revenue, because either way you will begin there and you have to build your way up to the tops. So it's better to understand what type of marketing strategies are used, what type of things and best practices are used there, and what type of things to avoid. 
And last but not least, it's really useful to pay attention to the underdogs because everyone are looking at the best practices. Everyone are looking at top crossing, but not everyone are looking at hidden gems. And that is where you can really find something that will take you to the next level. For example, for that at Magic, we've got a tool called Advanced Search. And basically what it does, it's a, a very, as I usually say, it, it's a very powerful tools, but you need really to learn how to use it. It's easy to learn, hard to master. And using specific criteria, you can make a very precise search. For example, talking once again about collectible card games. You can try to find all the collectible card games that were released during the last year. Uh, that were quite profitable. For example, they've made 100k dollars or less during their lifetime and more than 20k. So they've earned some money. They were not very successful, but still they've gained their audience and they were monetized. So maybe there are some things out there, gameplay features, monetization systems that you should try to research and maybe use in your app as well. Nice. Really, really, uh, really solid advice there. Uh, let's say that you picked, all right, a game team researched uh, the market. Uh, either they were oriented towards a certain genre because they have expertise in that genre, or they, fu- they found a hidden gem or an idea for an interesting combination um, or an interesting subgenre. Um, what, what's the next step? That's a good question. I'd say that when you know the genre or niche, you want to make a product in, oh, you've got, for example, uh, two different options. The next step is exploring the market. So comparing different market segments, if you have different options, and then going deeper in the one you see more potential in. So usually when we're talking about comparing market segments, we're talking about higher level look on the revenue, on the downloads, and sometimes on so-called metric RPD, revenue per download. So it's useful to understand in general what is going on on this market. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is there a status quo? Who are the main competitors? What is the revenue distribution? In order to understand, yeah, all right, we've got expertise, for example. We've got our interest. We know what is going on, but we should be sure about going there. We need enough resources to compete with others. So for that, uh, for example, once again, there are some situations where you've got, I don't know, collectible card games and survival arena, another genre. Actually, we've uh, introduced this category uh, this summer because of another game that was very, very successful. And now you've got these two niche and you're not really sure what uh, type of niche should you choose. Uh, and looking at the graphs, for example, revenue graph, you will see that collectible card games is a very, very stable niche. So it is mature. It, it's been there for like for a decade almost. There are lots of money, but lots of competitors as well. And it doesn't change. So it's, it is fluctuating around the same numbers of revenue for the whole market. While Survival Arena, it is on the rise. It is going crazy. And actually, if you look at the precise numbers, this September, Survival Arena as a niche, though it was um developed only like in june or july it reached the revenue of the whole collectible card games niche and exceeded it so it is growing like crazy there is no status quo maybe there are lots of competitors and this is the next step we will talk about so you need to check it 
for sure. But it seems that from the perspective of opportunities, we should really look at it. And by the way, talking about collectible card games, there is another advice that I can give. Be aware of so-called trap markets. Um, as a trap market, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me explain. So at App Magic, uh, we call trap markets markets that are neither growing or shrinking. They are very stable for a long period of time. And actually, that is what what is going on with the collectible card games. The main reason for that usually is that the developers out there they can't pay traffic with positive ROMI return of market investment. So for every dollar spent, they receive the same dollar back, which is well quite all right, but you can't scale up in this situation. And scaling up is crucial in mobile gaming world. Taking one step further, um, usually it means that publishers from other niche and from other genres can acquire the same target audience better. So you even, yes, well, the traffic is usually somewhere. If it isn't here, then it it is somewhere else and someone else acquiring it better than you. So it means that this is a trap market. This is, uh, you will go there and you will be sucked in. Uh, usually there are some situations when you can try to compete in such a market, but you should have very strong arguments. Uh, it can be either a very strong IP and by the way, looking at collectible card games, uh, revenue perspective of the market, it was very stable for the last couple of years, except of September the last year, when there is there was a big uh, IP-based game released uh, in China, and the market like doubled for half a year, and then it went back again on a plateau. Return to just the same numbers. It's really interesting because because it's an IP-based game. It could be that just that the addition to that IP allowed them to scale a bit until they basically realized the value of that audience and, and that's it. And they scaled up until the point that they couldn't uh, uh, achieve a, a positive um, ROAS or ROI or whatever. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Secondly, uh, you might want to try it when you've got a very unique and deep expertise in a very unique niche. So if you have a dedicated team of experts and you know that they've been working in this niche, I don't know, match tree or collectible card games, so vehicle shooters for the last 10 years, you can be pretty sure that they have a great understanding of the gameplay of your core audience of their triggers, and it will definitely help. And the third situation usually is when you don't have a unique expertise in one niche genre, but you have a very deep and broad expertise of the industry and whole. And this is the situation when a new subgenre can emerge. When you try, for example, to take core gameplay from one game or from one niche, you try to take meta from another niche, you combine them like some kind of a little monster. And in some situations it might work, but you have to experiment a lot. You have to be humble about your numbers. So if it doesn't work, if you have some kind of benchmarks, don't try to push it. And you have to know the industry really well in order to understand, uh, okay, so we've got like 10 hypotheses, five of them, they will not work. We just know from the industry. Another five, maybe there is a chance. We should try and then prioritize them and then check them out. So there can be a chance out there for someone to enter a trap market, but it's really difficult and you have to be sure about your reasons for doing that. 
Yeah. I think also, you know, like anything in, in, in the world or in investing, if you think about it, like high risk come with a high reward. Um, um, I will use their name because I can't, uh, I can't explain the game without it. But Coinmaster, for example, um, they, they combined two different uh, uh, genres, like a social casino and, and a slot machine, basically, specifically within social casino. That's the core mechanic of the game. But it has um, uh, different uh, types of mechanics layered on top of that. So building a village, protecting that village, uh, stealing uh, resources from other players, um, attacking other folks' villages. Uh, but the core mechanic is a social casino game, and I don't need to tell the audience like how successful that game is. And um, I think they published uh, recently that they passed like a billion dollars a year in revenue, something insane. So um, uh, to me, that's a hidden gem because it w- won't show anywhere, I mean, in, in the data because it didn't exist yet. Um I, th- I think that's that's really uh, that's really where huge opportunities exist. But again, it's a very high risk effort. I mean, for every coin master, there's probably tens of thousands of games that tried and, and you never heard about them. Um, so that that's really interesting. I, I'm interested in like um, the, the step after that. So once you actually analyze the data and you have a few hypotheses. Um, like how how would you approach uh, testing whether the game idea um, can reach scale beside the, the the data that you see that is based on the past? Like uh, for example, with Stormhaven uh, in the past used to um, run concept tests or pre-launch tests mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. using um, an ad creative and a product and a replicated product page uh, on the Stormhaven system to run basically a test for an app that doesn't exist yet, but you create the marketing assets for it, and then you can test the user acquisition economics. Uh, the one thing you can't know is what's the lifetime value of users that, that is going to be and how well your game would be monetized because it's you didn't develop it yet. Um, but you can get a good idea for how attractive your, your idea is based on different art styles, um, maybe compare different mechanics, and maybe even compare different hypotheses. Uh, for example, something that is pretty um, common in the industry is that there is a certain IP available for a mobile game. Um, usually, the, the, those IP licenses are limited to certain types of games. You can't do anything you want with them. So I don't know if you have a, mm-hmm. um, something from Disney, I don't know, Mickey Mouse, and, and there's an opportunity to license it for a racing game. It can't be an RPG game. Uh, but you want to compare it to a different IP opportunity that exists for, I don't know, a, card, a collectible card game. Um, so that's really useful in understanding the, the, the economics, uh, of the user acquisition side, at least, um, are there other ways that folks should approach testing? Cause, cause up until that point, like basically still, if you look at the world and the industry, uh, folks are using whatever data they can. I'm sure that they can benefit from more and more data, but the vast majority of, um, attempts to develop a new game, uh, fail like most game ideas, uh, at some point uh, um, along the way in, in their development journey, and that can take a year, two years, even more, um, the studio stops developing the game because they decided it's not good enough. Or they, the, uh, although they thought when they started that journey that there is a big audience and there is a good opportunity, they determined that there isn't. Um, the, the most painful um, point in time to discover that is through uh, is within the soft launch when a studio yes. spent. 
I don't know, millions of dollars, $5 million, $10 million in user acquisition sometimes if it's a huge game company. Um, and then they discovered that it doesn't monetize well. And the, the second they'll try to scale it to other countries, um, they, 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 I mean, they, they, it would become a losing, uh, a losing business uh, and would burn a lot of cash. So they just ditched that game at that stage. Um, even after sometimes it has some live ops elements, it has some, uh, we talked about communities in the past of your journey. There's some community to the game already in, in certain countries where it was soft launch. So it's extremely painful. So do you have any tips or advice to how to approach, like after you chose an idea, um, testing that idea along the way and, and when or which at which points in time you should reach that uh, uh, decision point where it's like th these go no goes points basically, and based mm -hmm. on and based on what? Well, that's that's a very good question, and that's a very important question for the industry right now. I say you have at least one additional step you can before you come out there and test the hypothesis, and it's working with your competitors. So we already know the market, we know the game and the genre. The next step is understanding who are our direct and indirect competitors. And with direct competitors, it's pretty obvious. You check the, you check the market, you check the top crossing or top three, you check the revenue distribution, though even there, there can be interesting things. For example, uh, for Survival Arena, or for, you mentioned it, Coin Master, you can see that there might be a lot of apps or a lot of games in this category, but like the majority of the revenue is made by the top one or top two positions. Like there are some cases where you can see that more than 95% of the revenue is made by the leader. And usually it means that there was a very successful surprise in this successful game that was developed, maybe even a hidden gem. It made it to the top. And then there were lots of other folks in the industry who were looking at this game and thinking, all right, so maybe we can have a piece of that pie as well. Uh, we can gather a small team. We can take some store assets. We can uh, check our hypothesis. And we can develop, for example, a variation of the same game, but another setting or another um, aesthetics. And, I, and it can be tricky. It, it can work in some cases, but it's really tricky. And I will just in a minute give out an, an advice how to approach it in order to increase your chances if you want to make a copycat of an already existing solution. Um, another thing you should really think about is checking your non-obvious competitors, but with the same target audience. So for that, at AppMagic, for example, we have a special tool called Similarity Graph. And what it basically does it tries to build connections between different games based not on the niche and genre, but rather on understanding what type of target audience they share. So, uh, of course, in this graph, it usually it looks like um, several dots with the games inside and uh, lines between them. In some situations, of course, you will see direct competitors. Well, it's pretty rational because they share the majority of the same target audience. But at the same time, you will see other games and other genres that you in some situations wouldn't even think about that attract the same audience. And this is a good, um, a good starting place for game designers and for game developers in order to understand, okay, what are the main triggers that happen 
in this target audience that help them to be interested in both of these projects or both of this niche. Maybe I can check these games as well, understand what type of decisions or what type of features I can introduce in my game as well that will work there and that are not usually introduced in this genre. Yeah, I think I think so, that's like on the Coin Master example, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the game design process there and how it was, but I would say that we, we call it affinity, basically audience affinity, like between genres. And it all mm-hmm. goes back down to the reason, the reasons to play, as we call it, like why do they play games? Um, and then what you said can be really useful also for uh, scaling the game and user acquisition and marketing, because you can introduce a certain mechanic that is... Um, kind of the hook. I mean, that's the thing that if you show the audience while they're playing the different genre of game, that's what would make them interested and in, in attracted to the new genre, even though it's it's slightly different because that uh, that hook is, I don't know, it, it really connects to the core of the reasons they play. Um, for example, a certain type of puzzle, even though uh, in your genre, it's uh, the puzzle is a mini game within a, a grander uh, storyline. So uh, that that's uh, really, really useful and important. And there is another tip I can give right away. Uh, you've mentioned the situations when you've got a successful game and you've got lots of variations on that game. And it's a very typical, actually, situation, especially for a surprisingly successful game. Um, I really, I really advise to, uh, to work with uh, trends and with hype uh, from an analytical point of view. So do not just copycat can be successful variations of an already existing game. It works and we can see it on the market going, going strong. But at the same time, if there is a big hype, you, you should know it. You should know the trend for sure. It is important. But uh, it is also important to address it with cold mind and your hands in the analytics. One example, uh, there was a very famous game released a couple of years ago in the summer of 2019. And it was absolutely booming. It began a subgenre of its own, and it grew from zero up to, I'd say, 13, 40 million dollars revenue monthly in a month. So it was absolutely big. And this was the big point when everybody else was looking at the company and thinking, all right, I can try to make it one of my own. Because the the company itself back in the days was really small. Let's try to name it, but uh, oh. I hope that you can. Oh, yeah. You, you can try to guess. I would say that you're talking about Among Us. Actually not. I'm talking about Archero. Oh, nice. That was my second guess. But Among Us had the same yeah. thing. It was like three people and that's the kind of uh, yeah. growth they yeah. had. It was just tied to COVID. And that's usually the situation when uh, all the other folks out there, they think, oh, all right, they've managed to build an extremely successful game with a small amount of resources. I can try to, to, to do it as well. The problem was that in this big point of like 30, 40 million dollars a month, everybody began to developing copycats, the same, uh, the, the same uh, core gameplay, but they didn't look at the analytics. And looking at it like right now, three years later, you can see two important things. First of all, our share itself from this point after a couple of months, it began shrinking. And it was decreasing, decreasing, and decreasing. And for the last couple of years, it was on a plateau. And the plateau was like four times less than the peak. So it was it wasn't like the point when you continue growing and you think, all right, so maybe I should go all in 
And this is the best time because I know the market is growing. It was the highest point, but no one thought about it at the moment. Everybody were thinking, oh, wow, look at this game. Well, look at what they've achieved. We should try it as well. And secondly, out of more than 60, more than 60 copies that were developed during this time, and I'm talking about copies that were introduced to the stores. I'm pretty sure there are much more out there that were not uh, developed to this point, but they were still in the de development process. Only three had a slight chance to compete with Archero. So when looking at the graphs, you can see that there is, uh, you, you can at least see these games, though they, they were not very successful as well. They, they didn't earn much money, I'd say. Three out of 60. So like, 95% of the copycats were not successful. And you, you should re really keep it in mind when you think, when you see a new hype, you see a new trend and you're thinking, oh, well, oh, oh my, I, I should, I should be there. Guys, let's do it. When I think about it, it goes back to, it's like base, it's, I don't know, basic or advanced, but it's business. Um, just try, I don't know, even like, a, a just give an example, I'm just going to give an example from like non-games and, and, just the actual physical world. You go on your street, there's like a really great coffee shop that, that, that is now uh, being set up. It's extremely successful. There's a huge line, folks waiting for coffee, anything. It's, it's very clear and, and it's kind of basic knowledge that if you open a new coffee shop next to it, it's not going to reach the same success. Um, first of all, it shares the same audience. They need to split somehow. And second of all, there's a, there's different, you know, that the copycat didn't do anything new. And uh, the reason why I, I think at least that, that first one or Archero or Coinmaster and or all of these games are really successful is because the what was their decision based on is basically the, the, the more connected to reality, like what the audience really wants, uh, which other genres do they play? What is my ability to advertise on those genres? Is it is it cost effective? Um, and how can I create a game that has some kind of hook to these genres to reach those audiences? And they thought about it from an audience perspective and started there instead of looking, because uh, uh, as you said, like there's uh, that survivorship bias uh, is really interesting because if you just look at CoinMaster, you just look at Retro, you don't exactly know why it works. Like, But they had an hypothesis, just don't know it. So you can easily miss that part of the game that was the key for its success while developing the copycat and it would just not work. Um, so uh, so that's uh, so I, I really like the survivorship uh, bias point. Um, so anyway, I think, I think that the idea of going the copycat way or just looking at really successful games and doing one more of those is maybe the the worst way to think about game design uh these days at least when the market is that competitive like just the data that you have the data you 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 told us that i mean it's it's it just doesn't exist there's suddenly like a huge game that dominates the market and then hundreds of copycats and the pie somehow gets shared equally it doesn't work like that never so so that's my thought on that. Exactly. We, yeah. Um, we need to finish in like a few minutes, but it's like, uh, th this is one of the most interesting uh, episodes that, that we had. It's uh, really fun. And I have so many other questions. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode, by the way. That's a great idea. Yeah, maybe we should. Yeah, because I think that the way that you think about game design, uh, you and, and the folks at App Magic and, and that scientific approach is uh, really innovative and it's really connected to a huge problem that exists uh, these days in, in the game industry. 
I just want to ask you one last question, given that you see that data every day. Do you th- like how do you think the current um, uh, economic uh, landscape would affect uh, game design? Like, how should folks think about it? What are your thoughts about it? Because the word is, um, you know, interest rates are really high. Inflation is. Um, I'm not sure it's it's still being uh, tamed um mm-hmm. and you know th- there's unemployment concerns some come a lot of companies are firing folks um recession concerns consumer spending is down in the mobile gaming market as a whole even though I think a lot of the reason why that exists um that consumer spending is down is because the tough comparable that existed a year ago which was still influenced by the unusually high um Uh, market revenues during covid because of the lockdowns and mm-hmm. everything uh but still consumer spending is down this year uh based on i don't know data ai and and sensor tower on of those folks so do you think that folks should approach game design differently be more um risk averse um how can somebody be more risk averse um what do you think actually that's a very good question and one uh, one of those lots of our clients ask I say I think it will work and it already works in several directions first of all the companies definitely optimize their marketing budgets their teams they try to be more precise and know better what they're doing so before that especially during the covid they've got a lot of budgets coming in and they had enough opportunity to be not so sure about some of the decisions to be not so data driven in some situations uh, to be all right we, we can try to test it uh, it will work less secondly and actually that's an interesting one I think uh, the industry will go into opposite directions so some of the companies out there especially one that are reliant on the marketing trends they will try to run even faster so we've got some kind of a marketing trend you use it for two weeks and And then it's gone and you have to uh, rapidly look for something else that will work and it's very exhausting so you're like running all the time trying to be ahead of the market and I don't think it's a successful strategy so you might be you might be able to do it for a couple of months for half a year maybe even for for a year but when we are talking about the long-term strategies when we are talking about games that will be played and monetized for years to come is definitely not the best way. Another way is uh, trying to experiment more, but in-house. So trying to work with the target groups, with audience, because we, we've seen it actually even before the recession and the trend is still going on. There are less and less companies out there that are doing big soft launches. Like uh, there are still some giants that can, because of the money they earn, make a game and soft launch for two years, for three years, buy traffic. And for like middle-sized companies, this game will be successful. It's a good brand, it's a good game. But for the giant company, it is not success. It doesn't uh, reach the benchmarks it should. And so they can close it and they can say, all right, so can, they can say to the community, all right, sorry guys, we didn't make it. But for smaller companies with less resources, It will be more difficult to soft launch and it usually means that you have to come up with more interesting game design ideas and that's one of the reasons for example we're right now developing an instrument to approach market from game design idea because we see there is a need for just liquefied goals for liquefied information about what are the trends about uh, what are the types of 
implementing different features, not just the fact that they are there in the game or not, but rather how you can work with them, how you can combine them, and how you can gain success with your players, how you can come up with a new niche or new subgenre, because it will work every time. In the end of the day, we play games because we love them. We love the core gameplay, we love the process. So when marketing fails, when there is recession, there is a still need for the enjoyment and the fun. And we can go like back to the roots, back to the gameplay, back to understanding what is clicking inside the heads of our users and what we can make about it. Yeah, for the, I'm, I'm sure uh, that, that this would, I mean, the, the uh, really positive trend for the mobile gaming industry would continue. I mean, um, again, Data AI just uh, released something pretty cool. Let me pull it up. Um, the they oh the the number of hours spent on mobile for uh, games and they uh, mm-hmm. I think now it's or it's just, I'm not sure it's just games it could be all of apps but uh, now it's like three and a half trillion hours a year almost four wow and uh, they would say it would grow until 2028 to more than six so it's still really like the the market will grow and the, and and the need for entertainment is something that would always exist in my in my mind, uh, but I agree with you. I think that in in a time where, um, you know, for companies want to basically tighten the belt and be more uh, more careful with um, with you know extremely big launches or running soft launch for a very long time and and taking uh, uh, more risks. They ha- companies and studios have to increase the probability their games would uh, would be successful. And the only way that I can think about doing that is taking a more data-driven approach, uh, which is still, I say it, it still has like game teams around the world still have uh, light years uh, to progress uh, with all the technological evolution that exists now because Doing all that data analysis, as, as you said, was impossible a few years ago. They just that there was no access to that kind of data. It existed, but there was no technology or at least expertise and methodologies to uh, to easily access it. While the, uh, while game teams thought about games, uh, and you said user groups, and you said surveys, and a lot of and consumer insights methodologies existed for decades, but uh, there, there's a better way to do it, uh, and and there's a better understanding that teams can achieve um, game affinities, mechanics, uh, the sub, the, the right subgenre uh, categorization and who are my true competitors and what's the market for that subgenre. All of that was impossible a few years ago. So leveraging that data would, in my view, definitely increase the probability of, of game success for new game ideas. And that's a way, basically, to 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 work in an environment that has less resources, because um, basically minimize huge amounts of loss. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's uh, we have to finish here because I think we're almost talking for an hour. But it, it you're a fascinating person, and it's a fascinating uh, uh, technology you were working on. Uh, I can talk at least an hour more. I have a question on math for you, but it's uh, <laughs> as a math teacher. <laughs> but um, but it was really, really fun. Um, I just have two last questions uh, before we we wrap up. First of all, if folks want okay. to reach out to you and, and talk, I'm sure that some folks would want to uh, talk about this with you. Where can folks find you? Sure, I can. I think the easiest way is to find me on LinkedIn. So Stanislav Minasov, you can just drop it there and send me a letter. Or either you can check the tool as well, it's appmagic.rocks. 
I really love the name. Like it's the website appmagic.rocks and you can check the functionality as well. Actually, there, there are a lot of things that are free. So even if you're a small company, you can try to use it for your own advantage. And I really uh, advise you to do it with any type of tool, at least one. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And the last question is, um, what's your favorite flavor of pancake? Uh, you, you recently moved Ooh. to uh, Holland, right? <laughs> Maybe that affected your... Yeah. Uh, your uh, Not yet. Not yet. But I think that's... Uh, I'm quite a traditional guy, so I like my pancakes uh, in a traditional way. But I play with the toppings a lot. Uh, I really love sour cream, maybe some salted caramel. And that's maybe one of the things I took from the Holland because they've got like salted caramel waffles, all this stuff. And of course, berries, because I really love fresh fruits, bananas, all, all of this stuff. So go in traditional, but with some spicing up with toppings. Nice. I think I almost have enough data to create... Um, an intelligence company about like uh, flavors of pancakes. Like, <laughs> what's the affinity between like different people with different preferences and different titles in the game industry to different flavors of pancakes? Uh, there is some statistical conf- uh, significance there. Um, UA people like different want- things. <laughs> maybe, maybe just an idea. You might want to make uh, some kind of an episode or an uh, article on the 1st of April with all the statistics you've gathered throughout the episodes uh, from like the position in the company and the taste or the way they like their pancakes. You will be surprised what UA people like to eat. Um, it's not tasty. Anyway, because <laughs> I, I eat pretty much and, and it's really bad for my health, but I eat pretty much every every new unique uh, idea for a pancake I get here. So uh, mm-hmm. so I tasted them That's all. That's nice. All right. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll definitely talk soon. Um, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being here. Yep. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. To find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve App Store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, thanks for listening.